to teach you a few things from the word. We're moving, making our way through the biblical, a biblical theology of what it means for God's people to host the presence of God here on earth. We began week one by looking at the Old Testament and some of the, the, uh, the symbols that God put in place, beginning with the tabernacle made of cloth and culminating in the temple made of stone. Each of those, of course, it began with the Ark of the Covenant and then the tabernacle and then the temple. Each of those were sort of symbols that were meant to, to uh, sort of contain the presence of God everywhere that the people went. The presence was to be in the middle of them. Um, and eventually they, they built the, the, the temple there and inside the temple was a, sort of the holy place and the most holy place and there inside of that was the Ark of the Covenant. Last week, Meg unpacked uh, looking at the New Testament and how Jesus came to fulfill and to replace the temple as the dwelling place of the Spirit on earth. He came in and he brought judgment to the temple very symbolically. You see some of those things in um, and uh, we, we know that looking at the, the story of Jesus that the Holy Spirit was upon him from birth, and it descended upon him in power um, at his baptism, and he operated under the power of the Holy Spirit. We know from Philippians chapter 2 that he laid down all of his rights to the full expression of his divinity. He remained divine, but he laid down the right to use that divinity, uh, the, the divine power. So what he, what he did on earth, he operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that. Uh, and in towards the end of his life, he um, he, he, he promised to his disciples to wait in the same spirit that is on me, he said, was going to be upon you. So we're seeing this thread from, uh, from Exodus all the way through the end of the book. God is doing something, and they're all tied together. It's not just random stories. God wants to establish his presence here on earth inside of his people. So we're going to take a look now in Acts chapter 2. Go ahead and flip there if you would. Acts chapter 2, the promise of the Father. Beginning Acts chapter 1, though, he does say some things. He's about, to, he's about to leave them. He's about to leave the disciples and be bodily raised, bodily sort of ascend up into heaven. That's a crazy thing all by itself. The body of Jesus is somewhere right now. He's not floating around like a little spirit. Somewhere there is the body of Jesus waiting to return. But in Acts chapter 1, he's giving these final destructions to the disciples, and he says, I want you to wait. He says, don't, don't leave Jerusalem. You guys are to stay here. Wait for the promise of the Father. Wait for the promise of the Father. He says, for John baptized with water. You disciples, you've been baptized with water. But the time will come when the Holy Spirit will, but, but, but in a few days, he says, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You had one baptism already, baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is saying, but that's not enough. There's another baptism to come. This frees you from sin, but you need to be baptized into the full power and life of the Holy Spirit. So don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for that promise. So the disciples are, you know, sort of, and Jesus leaves, and now they're, they're in a place of waiting, a place of expecting. And I, I would imagine they have their Bibles, and they're reading, and they're wondering, okay, what's this going to look like? We know what the promise of the fathers looked at it some last week. The, the, the prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Joel, all prophesied this time that would come when the Spirit of God would come into the hearts of men and women. And would change their hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Would cause them to obey God. That's the promise of the Father, is the Spirit of God inside every believer. But they didn't know what that would look like. They didn't know how it would come. Is this going to be like a slow burn? Is it sort of going to grow in us slowly over the years? 
You know, are we just going to be reading our, our Torahs and one day we're just sort of going to be, you know, snap tra- they, they didn't know what it looked like. They, had no, no, they, didn't, they didn't have an understanding of that. All they knew was that Jesus said, wait, in a few days, something, something's going to happen. And I bet that's an exciting thing for them to be, knowing Jesus said something awesome is going to happen. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 says this, when the day of Pentecost came, y'all say day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all in one place. Let me tell you a little bit about Pentecost. Help me watch my time, Megan and Chuck. You know that the Jews were, they were a, 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 a festival kind of people. Going way, way, way back into Exodus, Jesus, uh, God had established them to have uh, a series of festivals, seven festivals throughout the year, um, and, and, and sort of culminating at, at different seasons of, of, of harvest. And each of these festivals were sort of meant to help ground the people in their identity as, as the people of God. And of those, three of them required pilgrimages to Jerusalem. The other four, hey, you know what? You can celebrate there in your own village, celebrate there with your own, your own people there in your own land, your own tribe. But three of these, you need to come together into one place in the city, in, in Jerusalem, there at the temple. Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Tents is one of those. It's an autumn, it's an autumn festival that celebrates uh, the, 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 the harvest of grapes and olives. And they would commemorate their time in the wilderness when they were living in tents without a home of their own. Um, There's also the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in Acts chapter 2, they had just celebrated this particular festival. It happened just a few days before in the spring. You know that Passover, if you know your Old Testament history, Passover was a festival commemorating their, their freedom from Egypt and slavery and how the death angel would come while they were still living in Egypt And the death angel was going to come and kill every firstborn. But God says, I want you to take the blood of a lamb and paint it over your door. And when there is the blood applied over your door, the death angel will pass over your house and not bring judgment. And sure enough, that happened in actuality. All the firstborn of Egypt died and God's people were spared because the blood was applied and they made their way out. And God says, I want you to celebrate this event every year in a festival. I want you to take a Passover lamb and you're going you're to celebrate this. So all through their history, even up to the time of Jesus, they're celebrating this Passover. And it was this Passover meal that Jesus and his disciples were part of in this upper room experience when, they're, when he's giving them the body and the blood. They're sharing the Passover meal. And there's a whole lot to this, uh, but, but that's the second one. The third, uh, the third historic sort of Jewish pilgrimage festival is the festival of weeks or first fruits. It's called weeks because it occurs a number of weeks after Passover. It occurs seven weeks. And, it, uh, and, and, and it's also in, 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 the, in the sort of the ancient Jewish mindset, it's, also, it's connected to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And the history says is that 50 days, 49 slash 50 days, in other words, seven weeks, seven times seven is 49. So about fi- around 50 days after that Passover experience in Egypt, 50 days later, they've made their way out. They've crossed over the Red Sea. The Red Sea parted. You know, they go through the Red Sea and they're, they're out in the desert and they make their way there to, to Sinai. And God calls Moses up to the mountain and God gives Moses the law there on Mount Sinai. And there is a festival that God says, I want you to commemorate this day. And it became 
that by the time of Jesus, that the, sort of the name was uh, called Pentecost. It comes from the sort of a Greek word for it, but that's what the Jews understood it to be. We've got this incredible Passover festival, you know, here, and then seven weeks later, we get a whole other festival. We get to celebrate God's giving of the law here at Pentecost. So the day of Pentecost has now come. This is now 50 days after the death of Jesus, seven weeks later. Acts chapter 2. should have already flipped to it, but I didn't do that. So everything that the Bible records is on purpose. So when it tells us there's, there's something happening, we're meant to pay attention to that. So when Acts 2 says, when the day of Pentecost came, we're meant to pay attention. Okay, why is that significant? It's significant because we're about to see another sort of a, uh, another expression, another retelling of, of what happened in Exodus. Let me just read this to you. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to. With the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost, something significant is, is, is about to happen. The Spirit is going to go from just resting inside of Jesus now to being poured out on his believers, to being poured out on his disciples. This is the next sort of logical uh, sort of, you know, train of the car is now the Spirit is going to come, the Spirit is going to be poured out on people. But I want us to go back to Exodus because here's why it matters. I want to tell you what happened, what, what's actually happening at Pentecost and why it matters. And you've got handouts here. Anybody need a handout? If you're missing one, raise your hand. We've got a few somewhere that we can get. We handed these out when you came in. Four quick fill in the blanks. Here's the first one. What happened of Exodus? What happened at Pentecost? I believe that it's a recreation. It's 2.0 of what happened there at the mountain in Exodus 19. And God does things on purpose. God, God sort of gives us these snapshots as a, as a prophetic example of what he's about to do. So let's keep these two stories in tension, Exodus 19 and Acts chapter 2. Here's the first point, though. Just as in Exodus 19, in Acts chapter 2, God is powerfully, visibly, supernaturally revealed. God is powerfully, visibly, supernaturally revealed. Let me read to you from the, from the first Pentecost, the first giving of the law. Exodus 19. Let's go to uh, verse 16. Or verse 14, rather. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. So Moses has been up on the mountain. He's been receiving the law of God. No one else has been able to go up there. Verse 15, then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the, on the morning of the third day, listen to this. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. Let's put on our holy imaginations right now. Let's visualize this. Let's visualize being part of God's people. Being surrounded by your family and your clan and your tribe. 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 people strong. 
and you've seen God do signs and wonders. You've heard about his signs and wonders. You've seen him open up to make a path through the Red Sea, and now you're standing out, and Moses has gone up to the mountain. On the third day, though, this is what happens. There was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet blew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of the Lord answered him. Skip on down to verse 23. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain let us, and set it apart as holy. And God had given them these instructions before. He said, oh, Moses, I want you to come up and no one else can come up the mountain. I want you to stay away from it. This is a holy place. In fact, don't even get near the mountain. Don't even let your animals come up to the mountain. He would tell them that if your animal, if, if your animal even comes up, you can't, you know, they're going to be struck dead. You can't even touch them. You can't even bring any bodies back. And on that third day, they woke up and there's fire on the mountain and there's smoke on the mountain and there's this, this incredible sound. All of a sudden, the, the, the ground begins to shake. Just imagine how, how, how terrible. I've never been, anybody been in an earthquake? I've never been in an earthquake. But I'm betting that is one of the most terrifying things you can experience. Just the ground beginning to shaking and the fire on the mountain and the smoke coming down. And God is, God is, God is for the, one of the first times he is visibly, powerfully, supernaturally revealing himself in the presence of all of the people. And it's a terrifying sight. What would it be like if God moved in this way again? Chuck, what would it be like if, the, if this described our services? You know, what if when people came in, instead of handing out little programs, we handed out hard hats, <laughs> life jackets? What if in every pew we had seatbelts installed? Because when God comes through, it's going to shake the very foundations of this building. And you can be blown over. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being outside and say, well, well, welcome to King's Church. Come on in. Oh, by the way, can you sign a waiver not to sue us if you're struck dead? You're going to encounter such a holy God. You may not survive this encounter. There's going to be fire. There's going to be smoke. There's going to be shaking of the entire building. You're going to be struck to the core with the holiness of God. We don't do that anymore. How many of us, you know, we read in the Bible, it talks about that. The Bible says that, that God is, our God is a consuming fire. Do we ever talk about that? Do we ever pray that over our kids? Do we ever look at him and say, Jesus, I pray that you would be a consuming fire over my son and my daughter. And God is showing up in this incredible way, and it's the most terrifying revelation of who he is. He is awesome. We can't even approach him. We can't even let Fifi, our little dog, go up the mountain. Nothing. This mountain is holy. 
And God is about to descend on it in fire and smoke. And the whole mountain is going to respond to the presence of the Lord in a supernatural way. And the same thing is going to happen in Acts chapter 2. Different kind of way, but the same kind of way, all the same. This time there's not a mountain for one man to ascend up to. This time there's a room where every person is going to encounter this holy God from Acts 19. And there's going to be shaking and there's going to be noise and there's going to be fire because God says, I'm the same God from 2,000 years ago, the same God who spoke to you and ministered on the mountain, who gave you the law. I've got a new law to give to you. We'll get to that. That's the first thing, though. God is powerfully, visibly, supernaturally revealed. Here's the second thing that happens in Pentecost. Number two, the ministry of Christ is validated. The ministry of Christ is validated. You know, validated means to assure of, to, to assure of the truthfulness of a claim. And Jesus made a lot of claims about himself. What are some claims that he made? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way. All of those things. He made lots of claims. He claimed to be one with the Father. He came, claimed to be the Messiah, the anointed one. He claimed to be the source for life, the source for the way to the Father, the source of, to, for the kingdom. So he makes all these statements, and we need to remember some things. Number one, his holy, the Holy Spirit was present at his birth in an incredible way. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He had no natural father. Y'all say virgin birth. Come on, that's a miracle in itself. Mary knew no man. She was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was there through Jesus' life. He shows up at Jesus' baptism. The Bible says that the Spirit falls upon him, moves upon him at, at his baptism. The Bible says that the Spirit drives him into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days. And he comes out after his period of testing, comes out. The Bible says he is full of the power of the Holy Spirit. How many of you are full of the power of the Spirit after 40 days of fasting? Oh, my word. I feel like I'm wiped out never done 40 days of fasting. I fast a meal and I feel like I'm wiped out. You have 40 days, but he comes out full of the power of the Holy Spirit. He comes out, he's like, I'm ready to go. Come on, let's go. And he's like casting out demons and healing people and preaching and da 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 The Holy Spirit is all over Jesus's life and his ministry. And he promises it at the end. He gets to the end of his life and says, oh, by the way, y'all have seen this. Y'all see the power of the Holy Spirit's on me. John, John chapter 20, I believe, says he breathes onto them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. I don't know what happens there. It's kind of a weird thing. The other gospels don't say that, but John does. What happens there? Do they like receive the Spirit? Or is it symbolic of something to come? And at the end of his life, he says, wait, guys, wait for this. Wait. Something is going to come and happen to you. And so we need, he made, he made the claim, now all of a sudden it's going to be validated, it's going to be proven to be true. He made all these promises, now we're going to see Jesus, it's exactly like he said. So uh, Acts chapter 2, let me read in 
Uh, da -da 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 -da. Twenty-two. Acts twenty-two. Peter is is preaching under the power of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost. He says, "Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth, was a man accredited by God to you. In other words, proven to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourself know." This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. Skip over to 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Here we go. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see in here. Peter stands up and say, y'all listen, this isn't just some weird random thing. This was expected. Jesus is the one who promised that he would do this. And what you've just seen now, all this crazy stuff that's happening, you think we're drunk? No, 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 no. This is the spirit being poured out. So the ministry of Christ is validated here at Pentecost. It's proven at Pentecost. Y'all ready for the third one? We're moving quickly through these. Third thing that happens at Pentecost is this. A new covenant is given. Y'all know what a covenant is? A covenant is like a contract, but without real teeth. A covenant depends upon the integrity of each party to fulfill it. A contract depends on legal language. You can go to court and force somebody to do it. A covenant doesn't do that. A covenant depends upon the integrity and the heart of the individuals involved. Meg and I, we don't have a marriage contract with a lot of fine print and legal maneuvering. We have a marriage covenant. It only works if we both are committed to, to fulfill what we've promised to do for one another. There was an old covenant in the past where God sort of initiates this covenant with his people and says, I will be your God. You can be my people. All you have to do is a walk in a way that honors me. And they said, yes, we love to be chosen. Come on. This is awesome. Yeah. We're going to stick it to you, Babylonians. We're set apart. We're chosen. Sign on the other line. Da, 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 da. Problem is they can't do what they promised to do. They can't do it. They can't honor God. They can't love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They can't not have any other gods before. They try. They can't. Oh, look. Golden calf just keeps popping up out of the fire. We can't help it. Sorry. They can't help but commit adultery and commit murder and steal and lie and cheat and fornicate and all these other kind of things. They can't help it. They find it's, it's my nature. It's my nature to live this way. I'm so sorry, God. And God says, I've kept my end of the bargain. You have not kept your end of this covenant. And they would cycle after cycle after cycle. God would bring judgment upon them again and again and again. And they would say, we're really sorry, God. Please save us. We'll try harder. And God says, okay, I'm going to help you out this time. I'm going to restore your kingdom. I'm going to restore this. And they would try. And sooner or later, they would do it again. And it would start all over again. And God knows all this. God knows that they couldn't do it. But they didn't know they couldn't do it. They needed to come to a place where they realized, I am so thoroughly broken inside that I can't do anything that's honoring to God 
in the way that he wants me to. And God began to prophesy. He began to speak to the prophets and say, the day's going to come when I'm going to give a new covenant. The old one didn't work, and I knew it wouldn't work. The new one is not going to depend upon you trying harder or getting more discipline or going to church more. The new covenant, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to do something inside of you to change your spiritual DNA. And all of a sudden, you're going to find that you want to obey me for the first time in your life. You want to do good things. You want to be a person of integrity. You're going to find all of a sudden you don't want to cheat on your wife anymore. You don't want to steal. You don't want to rob. Something inside of you wants righteousness. And God says, the time is going to come when I'm going to give that new covenant to you. And all of a sudden here at Pentecost, we're seeing this new covenant is given. At Sinai, the law and stone was given. Moses, God said, Moses, here you go. Here's the stone. I've chiseled it in there. You will have no other gods before me. Take this stone and y'all do what it says. And Moses says, okay. Hadn't even, he hadn't even made it down the mountain yet, and they're already breaking the law. Old was written on stone, new was written on hearts. In Pentecost, the Spirit begins to come inside. It begins to carve out a new law inside of their hearts. It begins to root out things that don't belong. It begins to change ambitions, change motivations, change natures. It begins to put to death the old and help the new come alive again. Two parts to what God wants to do in the human heart. The goal of Exodus, hear me on this, church. The goal of Exodus was not just deliverance. Otherwise, we could have ended the book at what, chapter 11, 10? What's the goal of Exodus? Go on down to the end of the book. The goal of Exodus is the presence of God descending into the, into the midst of his people. So, what's the goal of the cross? It's not just forgiveness for you. It's not just deliverance from sin. It's not just that you can say, oh, my sins are forgiven. I can do whatever I want and I'll go to heaven one day. I got my ticket. That's not the goal of the cross. That's the first part of it. But that's not the full measure of what God wants for you. The full measure of the cross is that you are forgiven of your sins. Why? So that his presence can take habitation inside of you. That's what God wants for you. I want to say this. I may get in trouble for it. The cross is not enough. It's enough to save us. That's exactly it. Of course, we're saved by grace. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. But there's a, perp- there's a reason that Jesus said, wait, someone is coming. Someone is coming. Wait for him because there's a promise that's coming. Acts chapter 2. Let me read this, 37. Here we go. Um, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So that's the end of his sermon. Peter says that. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, they, they hear this story, but they also realize, y'all, there's, there's, I hear Peter, I hear what you're saying, but there's something wrong inside. What do we need to do? How do we respond to this? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the first part. 
begins with having the temple of your heart made clean because it is filthy. And the blood of Jesus makes it clean. But here's the second thing. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're going to clean out our heart. Why? So that he can come and live inside. Okay. New covenant is given. Here's the last one. The last thing that happened at Pentecost. Number four, the church is born. The church is born. Y'all know we have a birthday? King's Church. What's King's Church's birthday? Anybody know that? Kind of depends on... I consider it June 6, 2018, but that's just me. I guess technically you could say it's October 6, 2018, depending on when you say. But actually our birthday goes way back a whole lot more. The Church of Jesus Christ was born in that upper room. Acts 2, verse 40. So with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about three thousand were added to their number that day. Y'all, that's nuts. How many do they have in the upper room? We don't know exactly. We just know that in Acts 1, there was about 120 of them, so we can assume it's somewhere in that range. Is there a room big enough for 120? Maybe there were, I don't know. Point is, there weren't very many. It's about a church of kind of our size. What do you do when all of a sudden you begin to stand up and preach and the Holy Spirit moves among people and 3,000 people come to you and say, what do we do to be saved? Help us, baptize us, teach us, disciple us. The church is born in power. And all through Acts, you're just going to see growth and exponential growth and exponential power. Hmm. Exodus is a birth story as well. God's people are born. They were not a nation before. But yet God called them out and said, you will be my chosen people. They were born for this. They are called out ones. Luke begins with a birth story. Jesus. God with us, Emmanuel, was born into the world. And Acts is a birth story. The church is born out. You know what the church is called in Greek? Ekklesia. It means called out ones. God has called the people out and says, come on, I want you to be my people. I want you to come together. I want you to gather together in one place and have one heart and one mind. And I want to set you on fire to change the world. And for 2,000 years, there's been spiritual replication that's happening. Generation upon generation passing that along. You and I were the, were the, were the recipients of that, of that same thing. We trace our DNA back to the Church of Acts chapter 2. We're going to talk in the next couple of weeks about the Holy Spirit inside of us. What that means for the believer. What does it mean for the Holy Spirit to be abiding? Meg's going to unpack that next week. The Holy Spirit abiding in us. Worship team, come on up. The Holy Spirit abiding in us. And then we're going to wrap it up the following week with the Holy Spirit manifesting through us.
because both, both are realities. The Holy Spirit is in us and the Holy Spirit is on us. I like what Bill Johnson says. He says, the Holy Spirit is in me for my sake, but he's on me for your sake. There's an unbroken flow of the presence of God. Even through dark, dark seasons of human history, even through seasons of failure and heartache and exile and confusion, God has kept his promise from the very beginning. I will be your God and you will be my people. He started it. He knew what he was doing. He knew that a small box made of acacia wood was not enough. He knew that fabric and poles and goatskin are not enough. He knew that a temple made of stone ordained with all the precious stones and gold was not enough. He said, that's not close enough for me. I got to go deeper in. I got to get closer to them. And somehow in the economy of heaven, a conversation began where the the son said, Father, let me go. I've got the perfect place for the spirit to dwell. Jesus says, but it's, 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 it's dirty. It needs to be cleaned. The temple needs to be cleaned out. Let me go, Father. Let me go do one more sacrifice to clean that temple, the temple of the human heart. And the Spirit, I can imagine, says, and then I get to go? Do I get to fill? Yeah, you do. And so he comes and he fills and things are never the same. You can have that reality, church. You can have that. If you've never had that reality, you can. It's for you. God wants it for you. God offers it to you. Pentecost can be your own story. If you've not had that, I want to pray for you. We'll pray for you here at the front. We're going to wrap this up here. We're going to move into time of worship. Y'all, let's stand together. I just want to release the Spirit over us. I want to just pray, like Jesus said, to receive the Holy Spirit. I want you to receive the Holy Spirit. I want you to receive Him in all of His fullness and joy and hope and power and goodness. I want you to walk in that every day. There's not a limit to the Holy Spirit. He doesn't run out. It's not like batteries. You can have as much of him as you want. So, Father, I just pray, Lord, that your church, Lord, make us a Pentecostal church that walks in the power and the presence that you've created us for. We want more of you, God. We want more of you. We say, have your own way, Lord Jesus.